Over the past eight episodes, we've talked about what matters in health, about the scary, the outrageous, and the just plain weird. We've examined what happens when we fail science and when government fails us. You know, you just still don't feel safe drinking the water. You never know if the pipes are getting fixed. We've explored some obvious health challenges and some that are not so obvious. Social isolation, we, we now know, is terrifyingly dangerous. It can, it can lead to all variety of, of health problems. But in our last two episodes, we're going to take on the elephant in the room, a topic we haven't hit head on but that comes up in almost every interview we've done. This is what decides whether my child lives or dies because you can't verify that I'm able to pay to keep my insurance going? Why are we living in the world of GoFundMe healthcare? If you're lucky enough not to have to think about healthcare, be thankful. But it's still the safety net you hope will catch you when you need it. For others who have to use it every day, it's all you think about. Either way, everyone can agree that American healthcare is a lot. Nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. Except maybe that guy. So yeah, most of us know that the American healthcare system is broken. But a lot of us don't understand why or how. See, the system is closed off, hard to penetrate. The folks who make millions off of it, off of us, would rather us stay at arm's length. Because as long as you're in the dark on how it works, it's that much harder to realize how the system is exploiting you. But no longer. Today, we're going to dissect the American healthcare system. We'll cut it open to explore its inner workings, to understand the dysfunction in it, and how it came to be in the first place. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Here's the sad truth. Despite spending nearly a fifth of our economy on healthcare, Americans live, on average, four years less than people in other high-income countries. Part of that is higher infant mortality, which we talked about, and increasingly, diseases of despair that lead to alcohol and opioid use and sometimes suicide. But our less-than-stellar health outcomes also have a lot to do with the way our healthcare system is organized. And that's because the system has a ton of problems. So how do we tackle them? Stay with me here. If you're a doctor and a super sick patient walks into your ER, you want to sort out the problems they're having one by one so you can start to treat them. We call that the problem list. So let's say that that super sick patient arrives at the ER with a stroke. Big problem. But they also have high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Of course, you got to deal with the stroke right away. That's problem number one. But our problems are often connected. The high cholesterol and high blood pressure, they could very well have caused the stroke. So pretty quickly, you also want to get them under control to make sure that the patient doesn't have another stroke anytime soon. Now, imagine your patient is the U.S. healthcare system, super sick indeed, with a long problem list. And guess what? Just like with the stroke, they're all sort of intertwined. So today, we're going to cut through the tangle to get a clearer picture of the brokenness of our system through the example of a woman who's had to get to know all those problems far too intimately. My name is Lisa Cardillo. I am a two-year survivor of a heart attack and cardiac arrest. At the age of 36, I had a heart attack, and then within 20 minutes, suffered a cardiac arrest. Lisa lives in Southeast Michigan, and her story is intense. But before we get into it, I want to introduce the core issue on our problem list for American healthcare, the problem that all of the other problems lead us back to. We treat health as a business in America, where the bottom line is all that matters. And we seem to be totally okay that multiple industries make a lot of money off of sick people. The pharma industry, which we discussed in an earlier episode, the insurance industry, the hospital industry. And here's the kicker. 
they don't even sell us what we want. They sell us health care. But most of us don't actually want health care. What we want is health. The best way to have health is never to get sick in the first place. But how do you make money on that? Our current system, with all its messed up incentives, instead gives us health care. Because, well, you can make a lot of money on health care. And because it's built on people making money, those without money are left in the dark. At least 10% of Americans still don't have adequate health care coverage. And even for those who do, well, let's get back to Lisa. Tell me about your symptoms that day. I had no, no idea until, you know, a couple minutes before. It was just a, a completely normal day. Um, the symptoms that I felt were a sudden and sharp burning in the center of my chest, and it felt like it was coming out of my back. Um, this was a feeling that I had never felt before in my life. And within seconds, I immediately became severely sick to my stomach. So it was all very sudden and things that I had never felt before. This was back in 2017. Lisa and her husband were on vacation in Grand Rapids, Michigan, nearly three hours from home. Up until then, she'd been perfectly healthy, no medical history. But she was having a heart attack. She just didn't know it yet. Still, at that point, we're thinking, I'm 36 years old. I'm not having a heart attack. Let's just get in the car and run over to an urgent care. We got into the car, and my left arm started going numb. So we started looking up the closest hospitals. The closest hospital was 12 minutes away. They rushed there. And Lisa walked herself into the ER and up to the check-in desk. But then... I went into cardiac arrest standing up. Um, mm. I hit my head on the desk and then ended up on the ground. And um, I, I say, <laughs> I, I made it known that I was there because um, they rushed right to me and, and saved my life. Before we go further, I need to tell you a bit more about Lisa's family. This wasn't the first time they had to deal with a medical emergency. Just a few years earlier, her husband, 30 years old at the time, was diagnosed with brain cancer, also out of nowhere. He was treated and, thankfully, is still alive today, cancer-free. But he has to get regular MRIs every six months to make sure it stays that way. When it comes to navigating the healthcare system, Lisa and her husband, unlike a lot of people, have everything going for them. They have a steady household income and health insurance through her husband's employer. And that day, Lisa was also very fortunate. I happened to walk into an emergency room that had a heart center, had an interventional cardiologist who was there in moments. So I do feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. Lisa really was lucky. She was close to a hospital with a cardiac unit where she was more likely to get a high level of care. Had she not had that cardiac center close by, things might have turned out differently. Which brings us to problem number two on our American healthcare problem list. The choice illusion. When you think about it, so much of our healthcare conversation is about people scaring you that someone might take away your choice. Obamacare also means that for up to 20 million Americans, they will lose the insurance they currently have, the insurance that they like and they want to keep. Republicans believe healthcare choices should be yours, not the government's. In theory, in a perfect world, you could go to any hospital you wanted to get care. But really, the idea of choices in healthcare is an illusion. So much of healthcare is emergent, meaning you really don't have a choice in where you'll have to get care. If Lisa could have chosen where to have a heart attack, she might have chosen to be close to the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins Hospital. But that's kind of a ridiculous notion. A heart attack is, by definition, an emergency. That's the case with a lot of our healthcare needs. And it underscores a fundamental point about healthcare. 
it is a decidedly unusual market. Unlike most goods, where we generally have a ton of options, when we buy healthcare, we often do it under pressure, and that limits our choices. It'd be like having to buy a car in an emergency at the nearest dealership. No shopping around, no comparing prices. Worse, the choices we do have are dwindling. Today, hospitals are consolidating, buying each other up and shutting down the least profitable ones, especially in rural communities. Well, right now, in an emergency, tens of thousands of people have to rely on hospitals sometimes hours from their homes, a delay that can be life-threatening. Emergency at the ER. All across the state, rural hospitals are on the brink of collapse. It's a trend hastened by declining revenues and a restructuring of the healthcare industry that rewards scale and connectivity, difficult goals for hospitals that are small and remote. And this is where it all comes back to money, the bottom line of this business we call healthcare in America. This consolidation is leaving fewer and fewer hospitals to choose from, forcing some people to drive hours to get care, hours they often don't have to spare. If Lisa had been just a few hours north, where she and her family were headed that day, her story could have turned out radically different. As it was, when she went into cardiac arrest in the lobby of the emergency room, her doctors got right to work. They gave me the defibrillator shocks that um, got my heart back into the correct rhythm. From there, the interventional cardiologist was called in and he took over. They first ordered like a head CT scan and actually a CT scan of my entire body just to make sure that I hadn't given myself any serious brain trauma, which I hadn't. And then from there, they took me to the cath lab. And this was, you know, entirely based on what the medical staff at the hospital thought you needed. Yes. Yep. At that point, I'm not sure if my husband had to sign anything or tell them. I'm sure he told them, just do do whatever you have to do to save her life. You know, my life was in their hands. Her life was in their hands. She needed desperately the tests and procedures and everything else the doctors and hospital staff gave her that day. But she had no idea it was happening. Even if she did, most of the time, we don't quite understand just what the doctors and staff are suggesting because, well, they're experts and we're not. So you go with it because you have to. Sometimes that can have a big and unnecessary impact on a patient's wallet. And that's the third problem on our great American healthcare problem list. Upselling. Like I said, you're not the expert on what you need. The institution selling you those things are. And because they both tell you what to buy and then sell it to you, there's a conflict of interest there. One that some institutions, despite the best efforts of many of their staff and doctors, exploit by upselling you tests or procedures you may not need. For example... It may mean that you come in complaining of a headache and get an unnecessary EEG test to test for seizures, which clearly aren't the cause of your headache. As far as we can tell, this didn't happen to Lisa, but it happens all the time in ways big and small. Because, you know, healthcare in America is about money. Thankfully, Lisa survived, but surviving cardiac arrest wasn't the end of her ordeal. How long did you end up staying in the hospital? So from there, things just got worse. I went into heart failure. I had cardiogenic shock. And my heart couldn't pump enough to sustain life. So within about 24 hours, they had to insert a heart pump. This whole time, they kept me in a medically induced coma. So I had no idea what was happening. So it was 96 hours, about four, four and a half days total. And then from there, they slowly brought me out of it. I stayed in the hospital for another five days to recover, but it was nine days total that I was in the hospital. 
Lisa was diagnosed with a very rare condition that most commonly affects otherwise healthy women called SCAD, spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Once she was well enough, she was discharged and then put on a number of medications. A beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, I was on aspirin, I was on blood thinners. I came home with a whole pillbox. She was sent home with a bunch of pills and a bunch of bills. We'd been through this before. I knew I'd have a little bit of time before the medical bills started coming, but yeah, I knew they'd be coming and I knew they would be a lot. And they were. One of the biggest was for a wearable defibrillator vest. That cost $5,000 a month. And then when I finally had the defibrillator implanted in me, I believe they're somewhere between thirty and $60,000. That was a big one, too. All this talk of cost brings us to problem number four on our problem list for American healthcare. The third-party payer problem. In the American healthcare system, the patient, you know, the customer who's actually getting healthcare, isn't the one who pays for healthcare. The insurance company is. And if you think about it, that's just plain weird. You pay a bunch of money to an insurance company who then pays for your healthcare when you get sick, sometimes. That leaves patients, especially ones in an emergency or in need of desperate care, like Lisa, very vulnerable. What's to say that they're actually going to pay for all the care you needed, even after you've paid them your monthly fee? After the break, we'll get into all this insurance business way more and hear about Lisa's continuing ordeal. Stay tuned. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Abdul Al-Sayed. Today, we're following Lisa, a young woman who suffered a heart attack in her 30s, and dissecting the problem list for America's healthcare system based on her experience. Before the break, we talked about how almost every problem in healthcare stems from the fact that it's a business, and that many different industries make money on it. Before we get deeper into Lisa's story, at this point, it's important to understand how we got the insurance system we have in the first place. Or another way to put it, How did we get to this crazy place um, that essentially nobody likes at the the moment and nobody thinks is a really good idea and no one would have designed it this way and yet we're here? That's a damn good question. One that Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, whom we heard from a few episodes ago, is going to help us answer. And I think the answer is, you know, back in the day where people were paying more out-of-pocket doctor's visits and hospital stays were pretty cheap. Then came something called insurance, which was a good idea. You know, no one should say we shouldn't have insurance. It's a great idea. You need it. Our current insurance system germinated way back in the 1920s. As the cost of running a modern hospital, paying educated doctors and staff grew, the cost of hospitalization went up for patients. And hospitals started to realize, with all their empty beds, that patients simply couldn't afford to be hospitalized. Then, a hospital in Texas, Baylor University Hospital, came up with a solution and struck a deal with a group of local teachers. Pay 50 cents a month to the hospital, and we'll cover any future hospital care you might need. Adjusted for inflation, that would be seven bucks a month in today's dollars. That program evolved into what we now know as Blue Cross. And during the Great Depression, when hospital wards were struggling to fill their beds, the idea spread across the country. But it only covered hospital services. The other half, Blue Shield, That was created to ensure physician services outside the hospital, when a group of mine and lumberyard operators pooled their resources to guarantee those services for their employees. Eventually, Blue Cross and Blue Shield merged to become the company we know today. 
except they charge a ton more than $7 a month. And in Michigan alone, their CEO made 19 million bucks last year. But health insurance didn't really take off until World War II. With so many Americans fighting abroad, companies needed a way to entice folks who stayed back to work for them. Their solution? Offer health insurance benefits. And in 1943, the IRS ruled that those benefits should be tax-free. By the 1960s, two-thirds of Americans had some form of voluntary health insurance through their employer. And by the 1970s, health insurance was big business in America. But over the decades, it continued to evolve, especially as it pertains to cost. In the 80s and into the 90s, insurance, basically, if you were lucky enough to have it through your employer or through the government, you didn't pay premiums, there were no copays, there were no deductibles. And in that setting, nobody really cared how much things cost, right? Um, my, yeah, my insurer was paying it, so I didn't pay attention. Like Dr. Rosenthal said, healthcare used to be more simple. If you had insurance through your employer, you each paid something every month to your insurance company, and then they paid for your healthcare when you got sick. But then it got a lot more complicated as costs continued to rise. What happened during that time period was prices really started to escalate. I remember in residency having this little asthma inhaler that was $10, and suddenly, 10 years later, it was $100 for no apparent reason. You know, <laughs> except that the prices rise to what the market will bear. And if no one seems to be paying, um, the prices just go up if you're in business. Remember when we talked about pharma's absurd drug pricing? Health insurers needed a way to reduce their exposure to these and other skyrocketing costs. So they came up with ways to try and pass them off onto patients. They called this cost sharing, premised on the idea that if you have to pay for some of your care, maybe you won't use so much. Then to try and control costs, the insurers said, oh man, we've got to, you know, have the patients have some skin in the game. So they introduced co-pays and deductibles and high deductible plans, and we're paying more of our premiums. So suddenly we're like, holy cow, how did the prices get so out of control? And unfortunately, that's how. And it's hard to put the genie back in the box. Premiums, deductibles, co-pays all ways for insurers to pass their rising costs off onto patients. It can all get pretty confusing. So let's quickly define. A premium is what you pay monthly to have insurance. A deductible is what you pay out of pocket every year before your insurance kicks in to pay for anything else that year. And a copay is what you pay at the point of care, even after you've paid your deductible. There are also things like in-network providers, healthcare providers with whom your insurance company has already negotiated prices, and out-of-network providers, those it hasn't. Sometimes, insurance companies don't pay for services from out-of-network providers. All these growing costs, they're the fifth problem in American healthcare. The problem of expanding costs. Because the industry is all about the money, there's really no incentive for health insurers to actually reduce the costs of healthcare by, say, negotiating with hospitals or pharma to keep costs down. No, instead, insurers have mostly just passed those costs off onto patients. And that's exactly what happened to Lisa. Before the break, Lisa had just come home from the hospital and gotten smacked with the bills. But Lisa had been around the block before with insurance companies when her husband had brain cancer. We got smart after my husband's diagnosis and we changed our health insurance so that we didn't have to pay quite as much in deductibles. So that helped that we had the lower deductibles with my diagnosis. I think my maximum out-of-pocket was maybe 7000 for that year. But then... Other things come in, you know, 
when I went in to have a defibrillator placed in my chest, the anesthesiologist wasn't covered in network. So, you know, here's another $1,500 bill on top of everything else. So kind of just like that, one thing after another. The costs her insurance company wouldn't pay for were adding up fast for Lisa, who had to finance them. It was medical bills from eight different hospitals or facilities, and everybody wants their money. And even if it's only $100 a month for each, you know, medical facility, that's $800 a month. And that's not something that we had planned for. You know, what's crazy to me is that this is all with insurance. It's not like you were uninsured. You had insurance. We had full coverage, employer-sponsored health insurance. On top of Lisa's own bills, she spent a ton of time trying to get to the bottom of charges for her husband's continuing surveillance for his brain cancer. And God, the number of hours I spent on the phone with the insurance company and the hospitals and, you know, why isn't his brain radiation being covered? Oh, it's because the radiologist is out of network. And just jumping through hoops and honestly crying on the phone with them sometimes to get, you know, what can you do to help me? How can we get this covered? We can't pay out of pocket for 28 brain radiation sessions. When your medical bills become more stressful than your husband's brain cancer diagnosis, something is not right. And it got to a point with me, you know, he's trying to heal and I'm trying to keep the bills away from him so he's not stressed out about that. And this gets us back to the core problem of the healthcare system. It's all about making money, which means the incentives are all messed up. Think about it. You pay premiums ahead of time. Then, when you get sick, you expect your insurance company to pay for your care. After all, you've been paying in. But no, the insurance company, their incentives are completely at odds with yours. They want to keep as much of your money as they can, which is how they make their profit. So they end up taking your money when you're healthy and then doing everything they can not to pay for your health care when you need it. Because, duh, health care is expensive. And they want your money. So for people like Lisa and her husband... They're stuck having to fight the bureaucracy to get the care they already paid for. Bottom line, insurance, the way it is now, is not your friend. This is a big misunderstanding of many patients. They'll say like, gosh, you know, my insurer is in my corner. Why did they, you know, pay $10,000 for my colonoscopy when I know it's not worth that? Well, again, that's a misunderstanding of what insurers do. Basically, they collect your premiums and your copays and deductibles, and then they pay out claims. They're fine paying out big numbers for claims because their primary concern is keeping those giant hospital systems and your employer satisfied enough to keep their contracts going, uh, not the fallout on you, the patient. What Dr. Rosenthal is saying is that if insurance companies really wanted to, they could lean on hospitals to curb their costs. But they're more afraid of pissing off the hospitals than they are of passing the increasing costs of healthcare onto their patients. So instead of trying to curb healthcare costs, insurers just pass them along onto people like Lisa, who are the unfortunate ones who actually have to use their insurance. But if the insurance companies aren't your friends, maybe the doctors are? I do hear a lot of of people of your generation, young residents, 
going to the hospitals and saying, you know what, on those order sheets, I want to see how much you're charging for that MRI because I order it a lot and I want to know, you know, are you ripping patients off? I feel bad if that's the case. Mm -hmm. They don't get a lot of traction because they're residents, you know, or, you know, the head of their department, one guy said to me, who was a radiology resident, he said, you know, my department chair says on every reading we have to write recommend follow-up MRI. I know that's medically not the right thing to do. I know that's a billing thing. But I can't even get them to tell me how much uh, an MRI costs. And I'm kind of afraid not to do it because he's my department chair and um, I'm going to be in big trouble if I don't. That's how upselling works. Most people don't realize this, but your doctor, when she or he orders a test for you, they don't usually know how much it's going to cost because that information is kept secret or at least really hard to find. So even though the doctors are your friends trying to look out for you when it comes to cost, the hospitals they usually work for are not. So they end up being pressured to upsell because by this point, you should know what I'm about to say. It's all about the bottom line. And when an insured doesn't want to pay for something a hospital's ordered, guess who suffers? You know, if they can't come to a deal, the hospital and the insurer, they go, you know, no deal, and then you're getting surprise bills. Patients are being held hostage in these negotiations. So to summarize, we've got an insurance-based system that doesn't really keep you healthy, that doesn't want to pay for your care after you get sick, where choice is limited and prices are opaque and patients are basically powerless. Not good. I asked Lisa, who spends hours a day fighting with her insurance company about how her experience has shaped her perspective on American healthcare. It makes me sad. It makes me envious of other people my age with young children who don't have this burden. So it's kind of a balancing act. And it's, um, you know, it's something I never expected. And I'm not trained to, to juggle all these medical bills, but... It's just something that's happened to us. And yet, at the same time, she's thankful to be alive. After all, there's nothing more valuable than life itself. So my favorite bill that I ever received was the one, and it said right on it, um, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So basically, it was my bill for getting CPR. And um, it was only like $400, so not too bad. But, you know, we say that was like the best $400 we've ever spent on a medical bill. As Lisa reminds us, healthcare is supposed to be a thing we can rely on to get us the care we need when we need it. It shouldn't fail us when we need it most, or leave us suffering the financial consequences of our illness long after the physiological ones have healed. But right now, our system is sick. We pay for healthcare rather than health. Our choices are limited by the incentives that are shutting down less profitable hospitals and driving others to upsell us. We've ceded our agency to insurers who operate for their bottom line, who are colluding with hospitals to charge us for things we don't always need and to force us to pay absurd amounts of money for the things we do. So next time your unfriendly neighborhood president says something like, nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated, you raise your hand and say, no, sir, I did. Now that we've got our problem list for American healthcare, next episode, we'll talk about how we fix it. Stay tuned. As an epidemiologist, I know a thing or two about virality. So if you like our show, make sure to share, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. And tweet or Instagram me at at Abdul El Sayed, and I'll throw you a repost. America Dissected is a production of Crooked Media. Our producers are Austin Fisher, Carrie Jr. II, and Katie Long. 
Andrea B. Scott is our story editor. Our sound designer is Daniel Ramirez. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Elisa Gutierrez, Kara Hart, Daniel Porcerelli, and Tara Terpstra. Fact-checking by Dr. Nicole Aiello. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Huguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Mukta Mohan. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Tanya Somenader, and Tommy Vitor. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>